Good afternoon. It's great to be here. It's been quite some time since uh, I've, I've been here. In fact, the last time I was here uh, was before the building had been remodeled. And I remember it was so full that there were people sitting on the edge of the, uh, the podium. And so it's full, but I'm glad there's no one sitting on the edge of the podium. Thank you. Psalm 139, verse 23, says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist here is asking God to please show me what is wrong with myself and help me to correct it. Looking at the history of mankind, many advancements have been made in culture, languages, medicine, technology, philosophy, the various sciences, but one frontier has yet to be conquered. We have climbed the highest mountains. We've explored the depths of the oceans. We've catapulted ourselves to the moon. We've unlocked the secrets of the genetic code. We've unleashed the power of the tiniest elements of the atom. Yet, the mastery of oneself seems to be the most elusive endeavor for most of mankind. What is discipline? And what does it mean to have self-discipline? The word discipline can have a negative connotation for many of us, no matter how undeserving it may be. The thought of discipline may stir up feelings of sadness or resentment. There may be memories of when we were embarrassed, humiliated, or ridiculed. We may feel that we were treated harshly or unfairly when disciplined in the past. But the concept of discipline is important. It's important to us individually and collectively. Our society right now is definitely critical of the concept of discipline. We're constantly being sent the message that even the vilest behavior should be overlooked or excused. Discipline is somehow construed as unfair or unjust. Punishment for misbehavior is characterized as cruel or unloving. Our culture will not continue for very long with this view of discipline. If people are not corrected and held accountable for their behavior, then evil will abound. And the fabric of society will not be able to withstand the stress of unrestricted impropriety. We should be careful. We should be careful not to allow this type of thinking to become part of our culture because it's opposed to the truth. God's view of discipline is very different. In God's perspective, discipline is an act of love. When someone cares for us, they will administer discipline for our benefit. 
The Bible has much to say about discipline, and we're going to examine a few passages that, that help us learn this. Learn about how God views the concept of discipline. We can look at several passages in the Old Testament and the New, and several words are used to, uh, are translated to uh, give us this idea. Words such as punish, reform, chastise, instruct, chasten, correct, reprove, teach. In the New Testament, we have several words that are translated as chasten, chastise, instruct, nurture, learn. Turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, and we're going to start with verse 5 there. Hebrews 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to en- excuse me, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? We can learn a lot of things about God's view of discipline from just this this chapter and these few verses. We're going to return there in in a few moments and, and take some more out of this. But I'd like to consider the question, how is it that God disciplines us? And I believe there's a variety of ways that God goes about disciplining us. I'm going to look at seven different ways that I think the Bible expresses to us God is disciplining us. The first of those ways I'm going to entitle natural consequences. In this world, consequences of our own actions are often a type of discipline in themselves. When we poke the beehive, when we challenge the law of physics and are brought crashing down by gravity, when we choose to mistreat others and we're physically or emotionally beaten, these things result in tangible consequences that can teach us to avoid those situations in the future. Now, some of us learn the first time. Others require more lessons. But this is a kind of naturally occurring discipline that's built into creation. It can teach us to approach things differently and change our attitude and our behavior. Proverbs, the 11th chapter, verse 19 says, Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who perceives evil will die. Well, this seems to be a generalization of this type of God's discipline that says our behavior in part determines our well-being in life. God has so ordered the universe that ignoring the nature of things will result in hardship and loss. A lifestyle that's filled with evil practices will lead to very real consequences, both physically and emotionally and spiritually. Romans 1.26, beginning with that verse, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is one instance where God has explicitly told us that this behavior will have a negative consequence in this life. We see so many examples around us of both physical and emotional problems that occur as a direct result of our behavior. Sexual perversion, drug abuse, overindulgent behaviors have measurable negative consequences. And God can use the very nature of his creation to discipline us. Many people who have suffered these kinds of consequences are motivated. They're motivated to seek a better life. Hitting rock bottom has turned many souls around, as is in the parable of the prodigal son. The second way in which God, I believe God disciplines us, I've entitled time and chance. There's something to be said for being in the right place at the right time. Likewise, we could find ourselves in the wrong place at exactly the wrong time. These things happen as part of the way God created the universe. Time and chance happen to all men. It may not be the result of our decisions or careless actions, it may be purely the result of physical forces beyond the control of man. An example is the destructive forces of nature, such as earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, forest fires, etc. These are a result of the natural order of God's creation. These are certainly tragedies, and tragedies come from these events, but we cannot say that God caused these to punish certain individuals. Yet, they are a part of what God created and he allows them to happen. Ecclesiastes verse, uh, chapter 9, rather, verse 11 says, And again I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor to the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Jesus reinforces this concept in the parable of the Good Samaritan. In Luke, the 10th chapter, verse 31, he, he uses this phrase. He says, Now by chance a priest was going down that road. And that phrase by chance is only used once in the New Testament and it means by way of coincidence. We should be careful not to judge that everyone who suffers a tragedy or hardship has somehow brought this on themselves by sin or poor decisions. Jesus spoke again about this in John chapter 9 verse 1. He says, and as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Albert Barnes commented on this uh, event, and I'd like to read a quote from his comment. 
All suffering in the world is not the effect of sin. In this case, it is expressly so declared. There may be many modes of suffering that cannot be traced to any particular transgression. We should be cautious, therefore, in affirming that there can be no calamity in the universe but by transgression. We see the wise and wonderful arrangement of divine providence. It is a part of his great plan to adapt his mercies to the woes of men. And often calamity, want, poverty, and sickness are permitted that he may show the provisions of his mercy, that he may teach us to prize his blessings, and that deep-felt gratitude for deliverance may bind us to him." So we see that God's natural order of the universe creates uncertainty, and it provides opportunity for hardship, for tragedy to occur, not as a direct result of our own behavior necessarily, but by time and chance. These things befall all men. This uncertainty, I believe, should bring about an awareness that we are not in charge. We're not in control. And the resulting hardships should produce in us a desire to seek the one who is in control and to rely on his tender mercies. The third way in which I believe God disciplines us, I've entitled Futility of This World. When we become aware of the brevity of life and the relative meaninglessness of man's endeavors here on earth, it causes us to search for meaning and look for purpose. We can learn from this and we can be motivated to change our behavior and focus on the true value, the real value in life. We long for something that is certain. We long for something that's permanent. We want to be free from the evil, the sickness, and the death in this world. We want something better. Romans 8 verse 19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In hope that the creation itself will set free, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions of sons the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. If this world was perfect, if in this life we had no pain, no sorrow, no loss, no burdens, would we want to leave it for heaven? Yet God wants something better for us than this. He wants us to desire to be with him. So he reminds us by allowing life here to be toilsome and to be futile. I believe God disciplines us by the very temporary and corruptible nature of this world to cause us to seek something that's better. The fourth way in which I believe God disciplines us, I've entitled Divine Intervention. Intervention. 
God has intervened in the lives of individuals at times to discipline them. Many examples in the Old Testament show God disciplining individuals, cities of people, nations of people. God punished Cain, put a mark on him. Moses was disciplined by God when he struck the rock. David lost his infant son when he committed adultery and murder. And he was sent a plague when he numbered the army. Jonah was swallowed by a great fish when he tried to run away from God. In the New Testament, we see that God at times intervened to discipline those he loved. The congregation in Corinth had several problems. They needed to be corrected. Paul's letters to the Corinthians address these issues and indicates that God was at work among them to reprove and correct their behavior. First Corinthians 11th chapter, we see a particular instance where they were not observing the Lord's Supper in the proper way and bringing God's condemnation upon themselves. The 11th chapter, verse 29 says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God allowed an illness of some kind to act as discipline for individuals in that congregation. And we're told the reason why. God wanted them to change their behavior for their own good so that they would not be condemned with the world. Paul also had a personal hardship that God allowed to happen in his life. We read about it in 2 Corinthians 12, chapter, verses 7 through 9. Paraphrasing that, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. And God allowed that to be there to keep him from being prideful. And he petitioned the Lord to have that taken away. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength comes from your weakness, is shown by your weakness. We find that even the Savior himself endured hardship. Hebrews, the fifth chapter, starting verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So we see that God sometimes intervenes in the lives of those he loves to bring about good from an eternal perspective. We don't know in what ways this may occur. I cannot prove to you or disprove if he's ever done this in my own life. And I certainly can't judge if he's touched another person in this way. I can only be thankful that my God loves me and I can be confident that if he has done this, it was for my good. This is the way Paul looked on his malady. The fifth way in which I believe God disciplines us, I've entitled Discipline of the Church. Thank you, Brett. 
We find instruction for the church to discipline members who are living in sin. Galatians, the sixth chapter, verse one says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Jude 22 says, And some of you have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Paul writes to the Corinthians regarding a sinning brother in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verse 5. He says, To deliver such an one into Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the days of the Lord Jesus. Discipline is administered from the church to protect the congregation and to save the sinner. The sixth way in which I believe God disciplines us, I've entitled Persecution for Christ's Sake. Jesus told us that we would suffer persecution if we followed him. Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Why would God allow persecution to happen to those who he loves? It's because he wants to make us better than we are now. It may be for our good that we suffer this way. Look at the effect that the persecution had on the early church. It grew. It spread. It flourished. We can't see the future. Only God can. We shouldn't seek to be persecuted, but we shouldn't despise it when it comes. This is a, a way that God disciplines us. The seventh way that uh, I believe God disciplines us, I've entitled the Word of God. God also disciplines us directly through His Word if we'll just listen to what He tells us. God's Word should be the primary way in which we are disciplined. We should be chastened by the truth in the Bible. It allows us to see who we truly are and compare ourselves to Jesus. This should humble us. It should provoke us to change, to be more like Him. Psalm 19 and 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. James 1.25 says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
And 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So God disciplines us in a variety of ways. How should we respond to his discipline? What kind of response could we give? Knowing all this about God's discipline, it's our choice how we respond. Will it help us or will it hurt us? Will it build us up or will it break us down? And it really depends on how we decide to react to his discipline. We could react with a defeated resignation. Poor me. Our response could be one of self-pity. We could adopt a woe-is-me attitude and go through life resenting our lot. When we choose this path, we forego the benefit of learning and growing that God has sent discipline for. We deprive ourselves of the joy that can come from looking to the Lord and receiving peace from the Lord in the face of hardship. We overlook the provision of God to lift us up and carry us through the pain because we're focused on ourselves and not on Him. Another way that we could react to His discipline is we could, we could be defiant. We could reject it. Proverbs 15.5 says, A fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is sensible. We could become resentful. We could become bitter. We might decide to question, Why me, Lord? Why is this happening? This isn't fair. I haven't done anything to deserve this. We could become angry. We could lash out at the Lord. We could lash out at others. And any benefit of His discipline would be forfeited. And our very soul could be in danger. But rather, we could react to God's discipline with acceptance. We could accept His discipline as that of a loving Father, looking to learn, enduring with patience, at peace with the outcome of hardship, This brings us back to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, where we're told why God disciplines and how we should react. Hebrews 12, and this time we're looking at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Revelation, the third chapter, verse 19. Jesus speaking here says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So, be zealous and repent. This is how we should respond to God's discipline. So what is self-discipline? Well, I believe self-discipline is when we accept and we value and appreciate God's 
discipline in all the many forms and all the many ways in which he uses to discipline us. And we seek to be better with the Lord's help. As the psalmist in our opening remarks was seeking to know his own shortcomings and to enlist God's help in overcoming them, so we can look at his word to transform us into the image of his son. We can with patience endure whatever comes our way and realize that he has a purpose for us. Our motivation to change must come from a desire to please the Lord and be with him in eternity. What is my motivation to accept his discipline? Philippians, the third chapter, verse 14 says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's our motivation. That's why we want God to discipline us and we want to accept his discipline. And we want to appreciate and learn and grow from it. I believe that is self-discipline when we accept God's discipline. Now the question was asked in my assignment, how can we teach our children self-discipline? Well, that's a topic that could last a few weeks, but I'm going to put it in a few paragraphs. Start by being a good example to your children. They're going to learn from watching us. Are we showing our children self-discipline in our behavior? Ephesians 6 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. King James Version says, Nurture and admonition. We need to establish a respect for authority. The ultimate goal in disciplining our children should be to help them become self-disciplined in their walk with the Lord. It's going to be hard for our children to submit to authority of the Lord if they've never been taught to respect our authority as parents. Parents, if you believe that disciplining your children is somehow cruel and harmful, if you think that correcting their behavior will somehow damage their little psyche, if you subscribe to the live and let live philosophy of parenting, then you are ignoring the instruction of the Lord. You must discipline your children. Discipline them the way the Lord disciplines us for the right reason. You will be defying His command to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord if you fail to discipline your children. Because correcting bad behavior and instructing in good behavior includes some pain and discomfort. Our children should not feel comfortable with misbehavior. Time does not permit for us to discuss godly parenting 
at length, but our duty and obligation is to help them to learn right from wrong and to regulate their own behavior according to the truth. This cannot be accomplished without both punishment and instruction. They must be taught what to do and must be held accountable to do it, just the way God parents us. Our home is the training ground for life. It's the proving ground for what is right and wrong, good and evil, acceptable and unacceptable. Good habits are formed by doing good things over and over until it becomes the norm. Our bodies and our brains were created to adapt and make our lives easier by forming good habits. Our thought patterns and our muscle memory are changed as we repeat a behavior over the course of time. As parents, we have a limited window of opportunity to influence our children. But it is enough time to purposely shape these little minds and develop godly habits that will follow them for a lifetime. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Make your home the place where children experience the loving discipline of God that proves what is good and acceptable and perfect. Help them to appreciate the discipline of God in their lives and then seek to be like Jesus. Psalm 139, 23 again. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You have a loving Father that's waiting to receive you. He's looking for a son or a daughter. He's eager to, to make you into something better than you are now. And certainly better than you could ever make on your own. He's prepared an eternal inheritance for you. A life with Him apart from all pain and all sorrow. A life with purpose. If you wish to accept His invitation to become one of His children this afternoon, come forward as we stand and sing.